Hi, I'm Richard O'Brien. It's the 28th of July at 5.59pm, and this is Now Here We Are 30 Years Later, a memoir in Mountain Goat Songs. Each episode looks at a year in my life through the lens of a song by John Darnielle. Today the song is The Sign, live. Any live version, but let's say especially the one recorded at the Knitting Factory in New York on the 30th of August, 1996. The line between performing and writing is a little fuzzier than I think we often think of it as. Those are John Daniel's words in an on-stage discussion about the possibility of authenticity in a cover performance. It's not a claim I'd care to run past an intellectual property lawyer, but the Mountain Goats project has always involved inhabiting stories, often more invented than personal. This mobility of perspective feels of a piece with John's comments which I discussed last time about his connection to a bardic, storytelling tradition. I can see how, together, they might lead to an understanding of composition and performance alike as different routes, or twisting alleyways, towards this kind of immersion and experience. Mountain Goat's live performances have certainly always felt immersive, not least because of the full-bodied commitment of Daniel's often shoeless delivery. They have also circulated for a long time in online bootlegging communities, partly because, as an active poster on music forums, the artist himself was relaxed about their distribution, and partly because of the common fan desire to hear the songs differently. The feeling behind this impulse is one John recognises. I was always most thrilled when the live version was significantly different from the recorded version. To me, that said that the performer was still engaging with the material and still involved in the blood and guts of the song. The absence of the boombox frame is also surely part of this. Songs we're familiar with in confined spaces can show their ability to breathe, stretch, and occasionally roar like their singer is being flayed alive. Shows, especially solo, tend to figure a certain responsiveness to audience requests across the breadth of the catalogue. For the keen-eared, there are off-mic ad-libs and on-mic lyric changes. This year, a song you might have listened to a thousand times, hits a little differently when the singer says he feels the heroine inside of me hum. Palm Cordiagena sounds more desperate than ever, when the narrator looks at the room of tweakers around him and hopes for an opportunistic arsonist to incinerate all these fuckers in it. These are both, of course, songs rooted deeply in personal experience, and so there's a part of me that feels intensely grubby for finding their most extreme versions the most exhilarating. I take some comfort in Daniel's acknowledgement that fans have made it plain that they're happiest when a performer sweats. If people come out to see you play, you ought to be willing to bleed a little. That said, he's made it clear enough over the years that while audiences like to see him stomp and howl, it's no longer the aspect of his art that interests him most in the recording studio. That quieter moments like Pale Green Things and Hair Match dig deeper, ask for more from their author than the songs with most of the screaming in them. Even in this period, Daniel takes as a sign that he's gotten pretty into the story of waving at you. The way I get real quiet during the end of the vocal... To me, that's the signal that I'm getting so involved with the plotline that I can't really tell the difference between myself and the narrator anymore. That is really the point at which I feel like I've succeeded in getting somewhere. Everybody else assumes the louder I sing, the more deeply I'm feeling the emotions, and I do try to oblige, but it's the quiet moments where the shadows sort of start to flesh themselves out. Perhaps it's indicative of something in me, in many of us, that my first instinct is to take outward expulsion rather than inward reflection as the ultimate expression of authenticity. Some of this is doubtless a kind of lazy rockism, 
A musical worldview Kalefa Sana defined in the New York Times as idolising the authentic old legend or underground hero while mocking the latest pop star, lionising punk while barely tolerating disco. Comments on that genre by a second-rate English songwriter from the 1980s named Morrissey make clear the racial investments of such a position. And as Sana asked in 2004, when did we all agree that Nirvana's neo-punk was more respectable than Mariah Carey's neo-disco? I wrote much of this episode in two coffee shops, the first of them playing Random Rules by the Silver Jews, the second We Don't Play Guitars by Chicks on Speed, who I once saw in a curious mixed bill along with James Brown supporting the Red Hot Chili Peppers. A rockist, for Sana, is not just someone who champions ragged-voiced singer-songwriters no one has ever heard of, but it would still be laughably easy in a newsletter about the Mountain Goats to make a habit of extolling the growling performer while hating the lip-syncer. To do so, however, would be to read the songs against their author. In 2010, a fan started a waggish, single-issue webpage called The Mountain Goats Will Cure Your Bieber Fever. Three years later, John Roden recorded a short song for Justin Bieber and his paparazzi with the central message, You don't have to leave Justin alone, but don't be an asshole. The website is no longer online, Daniel's empathetic song having outlasted the fans' light culture war manoeuvring. I'm looking at a photo taken at my sixth birthday party, where I look like a figure praying for a benefactor's soul on the wing of a medieval triptych. But I think I'm actually in the middle of a series of dance movements. I'm concentrating intently. I look almost worried. With a formalist and or a Catholic chagrin at breaking the rules, I'm going to talk about a second picture from the same event to give you some context. The laminated posters pinned to red felt, the stacked brown plastic chairs and the decor, a freestanding crucifix and a framed photograph of the young Queen Elizabeth II, all signify English Village Hall in the mid-90s. Meanwhile, the Tower of Coloured Lights and the man in a pink shirt with slick back hair standing in front of a PA unit labelled The House of Magic scream Baby's First Disco. The GJ is also a magician, and I'm still the only person in the room wearing a patterned waistcoat. I don't know what I'm dancing to. Having checked the dates, I'm surprised to realise that in June we're a few months too early for the Spice Girls wannabe, before which I hadn't even realised I knew something called pop music existed. But this must, in any case, be around the time I started to become aware of something you could call culture beyond me, my family, my friends, the animals and vehicles in my immediate area. Parts of me would like for the song that first truly lit up some essential synapses in my brain to be Pulp's Common People, which came out in May 1995 and which I do remember at some point hearing in the car with my mother. Whenever that was, the experience was one which I didn't have equivalent words for until I read Springsteen's comments on the first time he heard Bob Dylan. It sounded like somebody had kicked open the door to your mind. But I think this was later. Looking at the list of the year's charting singles in the UK, my pop initiation seems most likely to have been the year's British Eurovision entry, Ooh Ah, Just a Little Bit, by Gina G. The House of Magic could feasibly have been spinning Wonderwall, Gangster's Paradise, Three Lions, open brackets, Football's Coming Home, close brackets, or Mysterious Girl. It could even have been a boy band cover of a singer-songwriter. The 1995 Christmas number one had been Boyzone's take on Father and Son, a song I love but mercifully don't recall having actually heard before the age of 30. Given the penchant of children's party DJs to prioritise guaranteed bangers which lend themselves to choreographed dance routines, it's not implausible that I'm listening to The Sign. 
As John reminded a 1996 London audience, the hit song by the Swedish four-piece Ace of Bass transcends national boundaries. It was number one in 27 countries. Though it actually only reached number two in Britain in 1994, kept from the top spot first by Mariah Carey's Without You, and then by Dupe by the Dutch Eurodance group Dupe. I'm pretty sure I'm not dancing to the sign. There's no way I'd have known the movements John came up with driving through the south side of Chicago two years previously on his and Rachel Ware's first East Coast tour. On the way from Columbus into Chicago, when we heard the sign on the radio, somebody got ready to turn the station and I said, what is wrong with you? Does God hate you or something? Has he not taught you how to love? Is that what's wrong with you? Is that why you changed the station just now, Liz? So then we pulled off in Gary, Indiana and bought the whole album on cassette, put it into the tape deck and just kept rewinding. Listened to it once, twice, three times, eight, nine, ten. By the time we got into Chicago, we had choreographed a dance. But whether or not he performed these hand signals at the time, it's fun to think that a few months earlier, and a couple of hours away from the south side of Lincolnshire, the artist who had in time become my favourite singer was yelling his head off at an unplugged record store show in Covent Garden, haranguing my countrymen to join him on the chorus of his favourite song. Once, when people wouldn't sing my song with me, I made them bring the house lights up. I went chasing after the British in the rough trade shop. They don't like it when you come at them and tell them to sing along with you. It makes them very nervous. Why is John Daniel so keen for his audiences to sing the sign? Not out of ironic appreciation, a concept he refused to recognise in an interview with Daniel Handler for The Believer. At some point, you might have told yourself and others that you listened to the Backstreet Boys because it was funny, but in fact you were enjoying it. It's just a different kind of enjoyment for you. I think most of that irony is an attempt to say, these aren't exactly my kind of people, and I don't picture myself sounding like that, but I still like it. I don't believe in ironic appreciation. I think if you like something, the core of it is, you like it. One thing the singer might have liked about the sign, enough to record a studio cover with wear on bass for 1995's Songs for Peter Hughes, could be its familiar preoccupation with cryptic symbols, like the unbreakable code written in tall, clear letters on your face in the recognition scene. The things that you hallucinate, if they're true for you, are as true as anything in the world, and you're entitled to them, and when people say that you're not, you don't have to listen to them. Daniel's minor modification to the chorus lyric, changing one key word from life to love, also brings out a deeper resemblance to his narratives of doomed couples who don't seem to know how to talk to each other. For so many years I've wondered who you are. How could a person like you bring me joy? Love is demanding, without understanding. But from his comments to Handler, it seems simpler than this. I love Ace of Bass. That's part of why I used to do that song. I thought it was a great fucking song. I suspected everybody else also thought so, but that everybody would want to say, I like that song, but it's really stupid. Perhaps there's something inherently comic about the vagueness of the sign's evocations of the epic, but Daniel himself knows the attraction of what Keats called huge cloudy symbols of a high romance. Looking up at the pale moon and seeing merely a lot of stars, as opposed to a sky gone crazy with stars, is partly a matter of judgement, but also one of genre. I like a lot of singer-songwriters, but at the same time when I listen to them it sounds like watching my peers work in the workplace, as John Todd Handler. I'd be more interested in going to a factory and seeing people work there, because I don't do that kind of work. This ought to serve as a reminder that pinning down where the mountain goats are coming from musically is more difficult than one might think. Dylan comparisons are immediately stimmied by John's conscious attempt to avoid listening to Dylan for as long as possible, precisely out of a desire not to fall under such an obvious influence. It's easier to map his love for Joni Mitchell, 
Blue is the greatest singer-songwriter album of all time, in my opinion. Randy Newman, there's not another songwriter working who doesn't stand in awe of you. And Leonard Cohen, who he saw in concert on the 1988 I'm Your Man tour, and to whom his brief elegy evokes the same emotion. Leonard Cohen standing before the Lord of Song, making good on his promise, no doubt. Every songwriter I know in awe of him, his songs endure. Responding to a fan on Twitter, he lists the following artists, along with Joni, as his main listening fodder when the project started. Steely Dan, Wasp, The First Ice Cube Full Length, and The Gun Club. To these we might add, from frequent mentions elsewhere, Jackson Brown, The Cocteau Twins' Victoria Land, and Lou Reed, whose album Transformer broke the teenage John out of a very different musical phase. My prog friends would always argue that the only way you could like Lou Reed is if you were in some way laughing at the fact that he couldn't sing, or that the songs were so simple. By the end of that year, I decided that Genesis and all of that prog stuff had to be destroyed, because it was so much more pleasant to listen to this stuff that wasn't trying so hard to be impressive musically. And then, of course, there's Alma Mater by the Stockholm Monsters, a Peter Hook-produced post-punk record by a band from Manchester which John once called incontestably the greatest album of all time, bar none, all records coming in its wake being weak pretenders to an unassailable throne. And Nick Cave, at whose 1984 Pasadena set a 16-year-old Daniel experienced total catharsis, an encounter for which there is incredibly some visual evidence on John's Tumblr, a picture of John to the left of Nick Cave's left foot, at the lip of the stage, looking up in reverent, fevered wonder. You can also see it in the Substack newsletter version of this episode. If the Mountain Goats don't sound that much like any of these guys, though Cave's apocalyptic strain certainly offers some lyrical parallels, the reasons are likely somewhere between technique and transmutation. We should also keep in mind the apparently fertile and self-sufficient indie rock scene in the Inland Empire from which the band emerged, clustered around artists like Wicker Spigot, Refrigerator, Franklin Bruno, and Peter Hughes' Discothy Q. In a wider context, John has referenced the likes of Smog, slash Bill Callahan, and Neutral Milk Hotel's Jeff Mangum as fellow travellers, along with David Berman, a songwriter to whom John paid tribute as the best of his generation after his untimely death. By 1996, the Mountain Goats had established an audience, and had also been lightly chastised by two record labels for releasing nine black copies and Sweden on the same day. I see this time as in some ways a period of consolidation. More confident takes on early compositions like Alpha Double Negative, Going to Catalina and Going to Kansas sit alongside experiments, notably on Going to Utrecht, Full Flower and perhaps most successfully Prana Ferox, with the kind of fizzing, scribbling electric guitar I associate with post-grunge American college rock. The closest the goats ever came to the sound of scene stalwarts like Sebado, who John called it the biggest deal to support in 1994. This was, of course, also the year when young Kurt Cobain snuck out to a greenhouse, put a bullet in his brain. Daniel doesn't seem to have been a Nirvana superfan. At the height of their fame, he was listening mainly to Slayer, and in 2001 he called Nevermind more pet rock than punk. But the death of Elliot Smith, not long after these comments, may have set some wheels of recognition turning. Even through his ascendance from underground wonder kid to semi-public figure of renown, Smith felt like somebody we know. When I saw him on the Academy Awards a few years ago, he looked so much like one of us after having stepped through the wrong door, but the whole thing filled me with the sort of exuberance usually reserved for when one's home team has won the Stanley Cup. I can't say if Cobain ever felt like somebody Daniel knew. But I do know he was born in 1967, took a lot of drugs in the Pacific Northwest, and didn't make it out alive. 
Kurt was young to the 37-year-old tracking Love, Love, Love in Prairie Sun Recording Studios a decade later. When he died, the two singers would have been the same age. From Ace of Bass to Slayer, Ice Cube to Nirvana, I'm mostly struck here by the breadth of Daniel's listening in what must have been a more polarised music culture than the one we're now used to. I'm old enough to remember when buying a CD you didn't like at first meant you were stuck with an investment you might as well put some time into, but I can't imagine following the philosophy Daniel sketched out around this time that if you have a really strong reaction against something, you should buy the record, right? And find out why. This is a belief that led the singer both to another of his favourite albums, Merciful Fates Don't Break the Oath, after noting initially simply that King Diamond's voice asks a lot of you, and to the complete singles collection by a band he had always hated, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. The time and money on his hands in his Norwalk employee housing apartment, Daniel told an interviewer that he ended up buying a guitar and a tape deck to cut his own covers of them. No can't take my eyes off of you. No going to Alaska. Tilt your head one way. The sight of you leaves me weak. There are no words left to speak. Tilt it another. I am losing control of the language again. This episode was written and produced by me, Richard O'Brien. Most of the songs featured in this week's entry can be found on the Spotify playlist at the bottom of the newsletter. I recommend archive.org for the live recordings. Thanks to John Daniel for letting me quote from his songs. The sources of all other quotes are given in the show notes and linked directly in the Substack newsletter. You can find us on Instagram at 30 underscore years underscore later, where you can get updates on new episodes and watch me ziplining to the bridge from Choked Out. This week, unusually, there's also a B-side to the episode. It's also about covers and my experiments with recreating the early 90s shrimper sound on the same model of Panasonic Boombox in my office in Newcastle. I'll be talking about room sound, angry mastering engineers, and the challenges of working with live animals on stage. If that sounds like something you'd enjoy hearing, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and keep an eye on the feed. You can also find me on Twitter as at NotRockyHorror. If you like the show, you can always leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to help more people discover it. Or you can always just tell your few remaining friends. This week, Richard is getting into 80s horror movies.